Please pray with me. Dear God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we might delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we might discern your truth. And shape our wills that we will learn to desire your ways. We pray this in the name of our friend, Jesus Christ. Amen. The New York Times op-ed columnist and author David Brooks has been teasing readers with a slow drip of content from his new book that was released a couple of weeks ago entitled The Road to Character. An excerpt was on the cover of the New York Times Sunday Review section on April 11th, and subsequent opinion columns have challenged us to consider the difference between what Brooks calls the resume virtues, those accomplishments we list, quantify, and celebrate to accomplishments we list, celebrate, and quantify of talent and uniqueness in a culture that seems to relish mastery versus those eulogy virtues, those attributes more likely to be lifted up upon one's death and describing the deceased's character of their enduring values and in Brooks' words, not mine, the person's God-given imprint that survives death. Now I know some of you are sitting there with a sly grin, anticipating that Brooks would be the warm-up in this sermon or perhaps make a cameo appearance because I saw some of you and you saw me when we were at the Chicago Council of Global Affairs which hosted a book signing this past week. Or perhaps you saw him at the Union League Club book discussion. His message could not be more timely nor more closely linked with today's gospel lesson. Brooks was inspired to think about the means by which people develop moral character as he noticed and confirmed through research that our culture has become consumed with outward appearances, accomplishments, and fame, those resume virtues he identifies. He's also noted the deep shift in our self-perceptions and our goals. Quoting from Gallup polls, in the 1950s, 12% of high school seniors would say that they were important. 12% of seniors were important. In 2005, high school seniors would say that they were important 80% of the time. By 2007, 51% of youth described being famous was an important life goal. Now, the only redeeming research he lists is among middle school girls who have offered the opportunity to have dinner with someone famous listed Jesus Christ as their number two choice. Jennifer Lopez was number one, (laughs) and Paris Hilton finished third. Brooks wondered, how does one learn these eulogy values, the ability to look beyond oneself to be, in his words, kind, brave, honest, or faithful, and capable of deep love? Taking advantage of his public forum for conversation, he asked in op-ed columns, I quote, are these values taught in classroom or learned through life lessons? Brooks's journey and the research began based upon the letters he received, and one in particular from veterinarian Dave Jolly, who answered with the following. The heart cannot be taught in a classroom intellectually. Good, wise hearts are obtained through lifetimes of diligent effort to dig deeply within and heal lifetimes of scars. What a wise person teaches is perfected over a lifetime of effort that was set in motion by yet another wise person, now hidden from the recipient by the dim mists of time. Life is much bigger than we can think. 
cause and effect are intertwined in a vast moral structure. In The Road to Character, Brooks explores some of the greatest thinkers, leaders, and writers, and how through struggles and humility, they came to learn to live for others, and in doing so, developed what he calls a strength of character. Going back all the way to Augustine of Hippo, who is one of the pillars of our Christian faith from the early fourth century, Brooks reveals the complexity he and others faced of what to do, who to be, and how to live were resolved after turning not inward, but outward, learning to care and love the other person. Brooks builds case upon case to argue that moral character emerges from the simplicity of returning to what truly matters in life and in death. Now, last year on Mother's Day, my mom was here, so I could not with confidence, out of fear of my emotions, tell you that with every fiber of my being, one of my life's goals is to learn to be as good a person as my mother is. She does not say unkind words. She's not Pollyanna, but she doesn't allow any part of her life to be given speaking poorly to another person or about them. She's the quiet one who does not complain or scold and whose life is lived as a model of kindness. She makes it look oh so simple. And I continue to prove just how hard it can be because I always fall short. On Mother's Day, we pay tribute, honor, and celebrate the gift we've received from mothers who literally give us life from a womb, who loved us with unconditional love that shapes us and sends us out and welcomes us when we return back again, no matter what it is. To be a mother, whether biological, adoptive, surrogate, or stepmother, or the countless aunts and uncles and grandparents and dads and nannies and friends who embody this sacred being for children of all ages, Motherhood is heartbreakingly rewarding and very difficult. The poet Cahil Gibran writes, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. Your children venture into the world. They're exposed to germs as toddlers and then other infectious agents as they grow older, and those infectious agents are not just germs. You can only protect them from others and themselves for a limited extent of time. During the protests in Baltimore, Toya Graham's motherly sense kicked in when she'd heard her son's high school had closed early and the mall was shutting down in Baltimore. She ran and crossed the line of confrontation between protesters and police and pulled her son Michael away as she gave him a scolding captured by cameras and microphones that he and others will not forget. You might have saw the news clips as well. Her bravery is being heralded to walk amidst those throwing bricks, but she claims as a mother, I quote, as long as I have breath in my body, I will always try to do right by Michael and show him what's going on out in society doesn't have to be you. No doubt Michael was embarrassed on national TV, but he is alive. Toya Graham embodies a mother's love that gives us life and works to keep us safe, keep us alive, and teach us right from wrong, but then always needs to set us free. She knows that she has but a few years longer to shelter her son Michael before he'll be launched. So let me return to Gibran's poem. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might that his arrows may go swift and far. 
Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. Now our gospel reading for today may have seemed out of sequence since we celebrated Easter so long ago, yet the lectionary prescribes we return to the night of the Last Supper and hear Jesus' voice again. Our ancient lectionary is tuned to the common human nature that we all have and asks us through this reading to consider since Easter, have we learned to live in the light of the resurrection? And do we understand the power that rolled back the stone to the tomb? Now, for those of you with Bibles that are printed with Jesus's words in red ink, chapters 13 to 17 of John's Gospel is nothing but a sea of red ink. It's Jesus's instructions and comforts and reminders and prayers spoken for disciples, but written for us. The comfort from chapter 14 is beloved in request readings at memorial services. Those words spoken before Jesus was handed over in which he said to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. Now, at Kenilworth Union Church this year, we have had so many memorial services in this sanctuary, particularly with these words spoken, and they are spoken to remind us that the resurrection is something that we are to believe in. And just as the disciples learned to trust Jesus' feeding and teaching and healing, and they and we are to trust in the resurrection and the promise of eternal life. God's love will not be stopped by political powers, and God's love is too great to be held back into a tomb. In these memorial services, we also hear wide-ranging eulogies offered by family and friends. Granddad would tell me stories ending with a moral or a value, but most of all, he was willing to spend time with me, and he taught me how to build a lot of things. Or... She always radiated a smile for everyone. Cashiers at the grocery store would think kindly of me because we shared the same last name. Or, my son lived with a go big and be kind attitude that inspired everyone that saw him. At these eulogies, I hear something new and different at each service and yet it's always the same. In eulogies, people will say, I felt loved. I witnessed love embodied in action, and because he or she lived, I know love. And these are the eulogy values. Before Jesus stepped through the horizon of death into eternal life, he comforts the disciples and then turns them back to their life to live, to live as he taught and to live as blessed by God. And in this portion, we hear the only command that Jesus ever gives. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. To abide in Jesus means not relying upon the security, or best I should say, the lack of security from this world. To abide in Jesus means to rely upon the strength from which you came and that will continue to claim you no matter where you venture. It's an inner peace of love that is stronger than any worldly achievement. Jesus also reminds the disciples, the one who doubts him, the one who will betray him, the one who was confused. Yes, it was a motley crew, but very representative of all of human nature and us. Jesus reminds them, you did not choose me, but I chose you 
and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you anything that you ask him in my name. And I am giving you these commandments so that you may love one another. Christian Wyman, who's the editor of Poetry Magazine and a lecturer at Yale Divinity School, wrote in the cauldron of his cancer the following. In any true love, a mother's for her child, a husband for his wife, a friend for a friend's, there is an excess energy that always wants to be in motion. Moreover, it seems to move not simply from one person to another, but through them towards something else. And that is why we can be so baffled and overwhelmed by such love. And I don't mean merely when it, we fall in love. In fact, I'm talking more of the other, more durable relationships. It wants to be more than it is. It cries out inside of us to make us more than it is. And to manage this highest form of loving does not mean that we will be showered with earthly delights or somehow be spared awful human suffering. But for as long as we can live in the sacred space of receiving and releasing, we can learn to speak and be love's fluency. And then the greater love is that God brings a continuous and enlarging air to our existence. After all those words, it's just really very simple. We are able to love through God's love for us. We are able to be more together than we can ever be alone. And through this strength, we are able to love particularly those that are unlovable. We can make it as complex as we like, but it's really very simple. Love one another. As we read these words, as we're meant to in the context of Easter, we can know that God has given the ultimate gift of love, one that recognizes and answers all the pain of the world, and it's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. For God to bring out good out of all things, even the cross, it's an act of courageous love. David Brooks believes our unwillingness to talk about morality and theology in the public square is making us inarticulate and unable to employ weighted vocabulary or rely upon the critical thinking of those who've preceded us. He claims, everyone is born with a moral imagination, a need to feel that life is in service to some good. And so he seeks to inspire conversation by asking the question, do you think that you have found the purpose of your life, professional or otherwise? Now, I think that question will serve people of any faith or no faith. It is a very good, honest, secular question. But in this community of believers, we have a different question to bring to each other, one that's brought to us by Holy Scripture and God. So let me reframe Brooks's question in light of Jesus's command. Have you practiced abiding in Jesus's love? Have you loved others as Jesus loved? Are you aware that you are chosen? Our covenant Bible study is about to conclude. We've been meeting every Wednesday for many weeks. The group has labored through daily homework, and I will say it's been long, arduous homework, reading some of the obscure, violent, and destructive histories that's contained in scripture. They've read the pithy and the profound wisdom texts and the foundational texts of our Christian heritage, and when they finish, they will have read almost from every book in the canon. In a few weeks, our children will step up and recite the 66 names of the books of the Bible, the selected passages after years of memory work, and singing the same songs over and over again that probably some of you still remember and can sing. Yet if we sum up all of these efforts, 
it is one thing. God chose us in a covenant and calls us to love. It's just very simple. We are chosen, we are to abide, and we are to love. Amen.